Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Simplifying the Sod. We actually have for uh, for this uh, week. We read this week the Perashah Yelech. Uh, in many years, uh, as we mentioned, we we combined Nitzavim and Vayelech together uh, this year because the way uh, it's a leap year and the way the holidays fall out, we separate them. Uh, we have actually a bunch of classes recorded uh, in, in on Vayelech, so if you have a chance go into your uh, podcast, whatever it is, and look at all classes, and then scroll down. For whatever reason, I posted three different classes last year for uh, Vayelech and Shabbat Shavah. So I just have a, a short message this year. Uh, as it's already Friday, it's, uh, it's 5783, 2022. Uh, this is, I guess, the first for 5783. We should have a good and successful year. So Rabbi Abitan Zech Zadik Levracha, he, he, would, he would often look at the names of the parashiot and the simple message that we get just from the names that we apply to the parashiot. And look at these two parashiot. We have Vayelech and we have, we have Nitzavim and then we have Vayelech. Nitzavim is standing. Vayelech is going forward. Uh, when it comes to this point, this time of year, the rabbi would mention, you know, we're supposed to go on the straight path in life. We're supposed to go, yashar, yashar, straight ahead. But sometimes we're driving that car on the road of life, and what do we do? We commit a chet. And as we explained many times, a chet is, is a connotation for when an arrow misses the mark. So we veer off the road. We veer off the road, and what do we have to do? We have to do teshuva, we have to return back to the road. But think of it this way. Imagine a person who veers off the road in life, a person commits a sin. The first time you do something wrong, it's very difficult. You feel terrible. The second time, it's a little easier to do. You feel less terrible. By the fourth or fifth time, you think that what you're doing is fine. We often justify our actions. Whatever I'm doing must be right. Uh, we, we, we were talking about it last night, and one of the ideas, you know, you start to dig a hole, and you don't want to have a hole in that place. So what should you do? You should fill it up right away. But instead, what do you do? You take the shovel, you dig another, another shovel out of the hole. It's going to make it that much harder to fill. And instead, then what do you do? You dig another. And you dig and you dig and you dig. You dig yourself a big hole in life. And, and it becomes much more difficult. So the rabbi would tell us, you know, look at it. And especially this year, I think it's, it's interesting because you read Netzavim. The rabbi would say, you know what Netzavim is to tell you? Netzavim is to tell you, stop, stand, stop. Sometimes if you're going on the wrong path in life, you're on the train going in the wrong direction. You're never going to be able to fix yourself until the train stops and you get off the train. You have to stop and stand still. You have to stop on the road that's veering off the path and stand still. You have to stop digging out, uh, digging the hole deeper. You have to stop and stand still. And then once you stand still, once you leave the negativity, as the rabbi would explain, then you can go and do the good. Then you can go and do the good. And that's why we have the perashah, the next week after is Vayelech. So if we start in Rosh Hashanah, you know, Rosh Hashanah, I got to stop, Hashem. Once we stop, then we enter these Aseret Yimei Teshuvah, Shabbat Shuvah, and say, now, once I stop, I'm going to commit to go in the right direction. I got off the train that was headed in the wrong direction. I'm standing on the platform, and now I'm going to catch the train that goes in the correct direction. This is the idea. Nitzavim, stop, stand, enough, vayelech, go, move forward. 
and it's 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 crucial to have a person in your life who who can guide you and tell you when you're doing something wrong. Too often in life, we 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 justify ourselves. I heard a, a story that, that's told about a certain rabbi. He was a, a great uh, master of halacha. He wrote uh, books on halacha, books that everyone referred to. And he came to a betin, a case against someone, someone with him. And he's this great halachic posek. He's this guy who knows everything. He gives the Bedin all of his arguments. And then the guy on the other side gives his arguments. The Bedin deliberates and they say, you know what? We're sorry, Rabbi, but you have to pay. And the rabbi's very upset and goes, well, how do you justify? And they say, well, in fact, we're justifying based on what you wrote in your own book. And the rabbi looked and he says, look how blind the person becomes in their own thinking that they write, they don't even realize their own book, he said, I don't even realize my own book that I wrote, the halacha is against me. We become, and so we need often in life someone to stand there and to be an advocate, to tell us, listen, this is the way you need to go, this is the way you're going off the path, you need that person in your life. We have this week's parasha, it begins, and we we see vayelech, what happens vayelech? Vayelech, Moshe, Moshe is going and he's speaking these things to all of Israel. The Ibn Ezra he writes something very nice. He writes shevet shevet. He went to each and every tribe, Lehodia, to inform them Shehumet that he's going to pass away. But they shouldn't be afraid, and he wanted to strengthen their hearts. With the words to Yehoshua. And therefore it's written, here we see that this is going to cause them to inherit. Because he's blessing the tribes. You know, he's saying that even though I'm not with you, I'm with you. I'm with you. And we, we always have to have an advocate. We have to have that teacher to teach us. But it's very important to know that in the end you have to rely on yourself. You need that advocate. That advocate has to teach and train and guide. But you have to be able to rely on yourself. I mentioned uh, on Shabbat that, uh, you know, I, my whole life I was a Yankee fan. Much less these days, but I heard uh, Aaron uh, Judge hit his uh, 61st homer and he matched, uh, he matched, uh, Robert, uh, he, he matched, uh, Roger Maris, um, his 61 home runs. And the next week, uh, He's hoping to break that record. In, in any event, uh, so I, say I grew up as a Yankee fan my whole life. But in 1969, 1973, if you were in New York, even though I was a very little kid, you were a Mets fan. Everyone had to be rooting for the Miracle Mets. And there was a pitcher for the Mets in those years. He was a relief pitcher. His name was Tug McGraw. And Tug McGraw, I guess we say he coined the phrase, although the phrase definitely existed, Tug McGraw coined a phrase in New York that everybody to this day, if you ask them, what did Tug McGraw say? And they were alive in those days, they'll tell you. Tug McGraw said, you got to believe. You got to believe. And the person you got to believe in is you got to believe in yourself. You got to believe in yourself. You got to take the direction of believing yourself. There's a story that they tell students in law school. And it's, it's in a class on how to... Coach your client. How to coach your client. You could be the best lawyer in the world. But if your client is not coached, if your client doesn't understand 
the role that the client plays in a case, in a trial, in a deposition, then that could mess everything up. You often have a client that goes into a deposition and simply just doesn't know how to keep their mouth shut and gives away the case. And in a court, a client has to be coached, even in how they're sitting and what they're looking at and what they're doing. So the story is told as follows. There was a certain politician, very powerful politician, and one day he's arrested for the murder of a 17-year-old young girl. And the evidence points towards him. He must have done it. And uh, the, the whole city is in an uproar. And what does this guy do? He goes and he finds the best attorney in the country. And this attorney has never lost a capital case. In every capital case that he, he, uh, he tried, he fought, he, he was able to convince the jury to let his client off. So this politician comes and hires this attorney with his massive $5 million retainer fee. And it, the prosecutor is named, and it's a young kid, uh, finished law school a couple of months earlier, started working for the DA, and this is his, real, his first real big case. But the prosecutor has everything on his side. He has all the facts, all the circumstantial evidence, all the witnesses. Still, the paper is calling this a case of David against Goliath. This $5 million retained a lawyer versus this kid out of law school. And the trial begins. And the politician is sitting there smug. He has his attorney. He knows everything's going to be okay. And the prosecutor calls the first witness, and it's a secretary who worked in the building, and she was, where were you? I was walking by the office, and I looked inside, and I saw the politician with the girl, and, and then a minute later, I heard screams coming from inside that office, and, uh, and then, another, and then uh, the, the defense attorney uh, gets up, and it's your witness. And he says, well, what time was it? He says, well, she says it was 3 o'clock. And she says, are you sure it was 3 o'clock? He says, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I, I looked at my watch. Well, what kind of watch do you have? I have a swatch. Well, are you sure your swatch was telling the right time? Uh, I don't know. I guess my swatch usually tells the right time. And everybody's looking at the, at the defense attorney saying, well, what kind of questions are these? And he says, no further questions. He goes and he sits down and you have other people come up and there's, there's a knife and the blood on the knife and his DNA on the knife and... All the evidence is pointing to the fact that he was the one who killed this girl. And finally, the, the witnesses are done, and the, the, uh, the judge asks each of the lawyers for a summation to the jury. The prosecutor goes through a summation, and uh, he turns to the defense attorney. And the defense attorney says, Your Honor, but before I do my summation, I just want to submit to the court as follows. You know, people must have been wondering, why am I asking these silly questions? Why am I skipping questions? Why am I running the, the case so quickly? And I'm going to tell you, because I didn't want to waste your time. I didn't want to waste the jury's time. Because the fact is that my office got a call two days ago, and the caller identified herself as the victim. And in fact, she is still alive. She ran away. All this was for her to run away from home. 
And since there's no victim, there's no case. And in fact, my office was also informed that this woman would be here today in court at 3 p.m. So, Your Honor, it's 2 p.m. now. I beg the indulgence of the court. Let's wait till 3 p.m. And she's going to be walking through those doors. And the whole jury is shocked. The court is shocked. The judge is shocked. And the $5 million attorney walks over to the prosecutor and says, you thought you had a case. And very loudly, he says, you had nothing. There is no case. Just a waste of taxpayers' money. And he sits down. And as the clock approaches three, the entire court, the judge, the jury, all of the people, the spectators in the court are staring at that door. And three o'clock, they're waiting for this girl to come in. 305, 3.10, 3.15, 3.30, they're waiting. And finally, four o'clock, the judge bings the gavel and he says to the defense attorney, I don't know when she's going to show up. And when she shows up, we'll stop the proceedings and we'll go from there. But for now, it's four o'clock. Give the court your summation. And so the defense attorney gets up and says, Absolutely, Your Honor, I understand. And he turns to the jury and he says to the jury, Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you're all American citizens, and you all know that to convict someone of a capital crime, you have to be convinced of the person's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, I submit to each and every one of you, including Your Honor the Judge, You all were staring at that door for the last hour, waiting for her to come in. That means each and every one of you has some doubt as to whether or not she's dead, because otherwise you wouldn't have been staring at the door. And if there's doubt to her being dead, there has to be doubt to whether the crime of murder was committed here. And therefore, you must acquit my client. And the spectators erupt, the news reporters run out. And the judge turns to the jury to give them his final instructions. And he reiterates that if there is a doubt, you have to acquit. And so the jury goes off to the jury room. The politician is sitting there smug and smiling. He's got this. Now he knows what he spent $5 million on for this lawyer. Genius. And the prosecutor has his hands in his head. His head is in his head in his hands. And what happens? The jury goes out. After an hour, they inform the judge they're ready to render a verdict. And they come inside. And the forewoman is asked, you have the verdict and she does she hands the paper to the bailiff and the bailiff brings it to the judge and the judge turns to the jury and says are you serious and the forewoman says yes your honor we're all in agreement and the judge opens the paper and turns to court 
and tells the defendant to rise, and he's so sure he's off the hook. And he says, the jury finds you guilty. And the judge looks at the jury and says, I don't understand. We all were staring at the door. There has to be some doubt. How did you find the defendant guilty? And the forewoman says, Your Honor, may I introduce this young lady? She's 20 years old, and she was the one who convinced us of the guilt of the defendant. And we all agreed with her. And so the judge asks the young lady to get up and explain. (coughs) And she says, Your Honor, at three o'clock, everyone's head in this room turned towards that door. And everyone was staring at the door, waiting for the victim to walk through. But I didn't turn to the door. I happened to be staring at the defendant. And for one hour, the defendant sat facing forward. He was the only person in this courtroom who never turned his head towards the door. He was the only person never looking towards the door for the victim to step forward. And Your Honor, it's obvious that the reason he didn't do that was because he knew that she was dead. He was the only one who could know that she's dead. And she's not walking back through that door because that would be impossible. And because he never turned his head to look, Your Honor, we're convinced beyond a reasonable doubt, based on the evidence supplied by the prosecutor, that the defendant is guilty of murder as charged. And again, an uproar of the court and the lawyer turns to his client, smacks him in the head and says, you idiot, couldn't you look at the door for one minute? It's interesting. We're all judged in the holidays and we all know we're guilty. All of us are guilty. We hold he admits, changes his ways, he's forgiven. But a person has to believe that they can stop they could change, and they can go on a different path. They have to believe that they could be a person who's doing something wrong, admit that they're doing something wrong. Because as we said, the more we do it, the less wrong it is to us to the point where we believe maybe we're doing a mitzvah when we're really doing an avira. We have to stop. And then when we stop, we have to reverse course, and we have to move forward. Moshe Rabbeinu, is telling the people, don't worry, I'm with you. Moshe is our teacher, just like the rabbi was our teacher, just like all of our teachers are teaching us, they're guiding us. They're our lawyers, they're our advocates. They could do a great job in the heavenly court. We're coming to Yom Kippur, we're coming to the day of delivery of the verdict. But for the verdict to be in our favor, one thing is required. It's like Tug McGraw said, you gotta believe. I want to wish everyone a Shabbat Shalom. Tiskul Shanim Rabot, Neimot, Etovot.
We should all be judged for a happy year, a healthy year, a peaceful year, a prosperous year, a judgment for life. Hashem should be with us, and we should see, Bezrat Hashem, this year, 5783, the year of the gathering of the people, that Hashem should gather in all of the exiles, and we should see Mashiach Bimerabi Amen.